Publius Ovidius Nasso, born on the 20th of March, 43 BC, was perhaps the greatest poet of an age utterly rife with literary talent. Since that time, so many long centuries ago, his name has suffered something of an English abridgment. Today, the delightfully long, aristocratic, and celebrated Roman name has seen itself reduced down to two immortal syllables. Ovid. Still, the name carries with it a breadth of meaning, a weight of history, and a melodious ring by which modern ears are tickled, and ancient myths renewed. That said, I'm glad to say there's been no concomitant diminution in his stature. Yes, we may have shortened his exalted name, if only for the convenience of our rustic tongue. But I detect no lessening of the great prestige of which Publius Ovidius Nasso is and shall always be deserving. His birth bisected two earth-shattering triumvirates, the first led by Julius Caesar, and the second absorbed by Octavian. He was born almost one year to the day after the assassination in Pompey's theater of Julius Caesar, the amorous dictator before whom, in a heap, the wobbling republic crumbled. He lived and worked under the mostly benevolent reign of the latter, Caesar Augustus, the deific king by whom the irreverent scribbler would eventually be exiled. Ovid contributed his genius to a different, less bellicose triumvirate, of which Horace and Virgil were fellow members. He, however, was excluded from the grand Augustan clique of which they jointly partook. Unlike them, Ovid was independently endowed with both talent and means, and required no patron for the cultivation or curtailment of his skill. Thus did he become persona non grata in that esteemed literary circle of which the emperor's urbane confidant, Mycenas, was the superintendent. No triumvirate, it seems, can long last. The work for which Ovid is most famous, his Metamorphoses, is a narrative epic told in fifteen books. Seek the timeless works of Aeschylus, Homer, Hesiod, or Sophocles, and you'll not find a better 
more fertile source of Grecian myth. Ovid contains the very heart of the Western heritage, and thus sits at the core of our canon. The work recounts, in Hesiodic fashion, the birth of the world out of the chaos and the earliest stages of man. Thence does it move through every conceivable myth, from Apollo's pursuit of Daphne to Narcissus's rebuff of Echo to Perseus's rescue of Andromeda to Persephone's rape by Pluto and Icarus's fall by his own presumptuous conceit. It ends piously with the apotheosis of Caesar, a supernatural event in which the fallen republic now earnestly believed. I urge you to read it all, as every page will reward you. I offer here only a passage that I do hope you'll enjoy. Metamorphoses by Ovid Book the Tenth Thence Hymenius, clad in a saffron-colored robe, passed through the unmeasured tract of air and directed his course to the regions of the Siconians, and, in vain, was invoked by the voice of Orpheus. He presented himself, indeed, but he brought with him neither auspicious words, nor joyful looks, nor yet a happy omen. The torch, too, which he held, was hissing with a smoke that brought tears to the eyes. And as it was, it found no flames amid its waving. The issue was more disastrous than the omens. For the new-made bride, while she was strolling along the grass, attended by a train of naiads, was killed, having received the sting of a serpent on her ankle. After the Rhodopean bard had sufficiently bewailed her in the upper realms of air, that he might try the shades below as well, he dared descend to sticks by the Denarian gate, and amid the phantom inhabitants and ghosts that had enjoyed the tomb, he went to Persephone, and him that held these unpleasing realms, the ruler of the shades. 
and touching his strings in concert with his words, he thus said, O yea, deities of the world that lies beneath the earth, to which we all come at last, each that is born of mortality. If I may be allowed, and you suffer me to speak the truth, laying aside the artful expressions of a deceitful tongue. I have not descended hither from curiosity to seek dark Tartarus, nor to bind the threefold throat of the Medusan monster bristling with serpents. But my wife, was the cause of my coming. Into whom a serpent, trodden upon by her, diffused its poison and cut short her growing years. I was wishful to be able to endure this and I will not deny that I have endeavored to do so. Love has proved the stronger. That God is well known in the regions above. Whether he be so here, too, I am uncertain. But yet I imagine that even here he is, and if the story of the rape of former days is not untrue, t'was love that united you two together. By these places filled with horrors, by this vast chaos, and by the silence of these boundless realms, I entreat you, weave over again the quick-spun thread of the life of Eurydice. To you we all belong, and having stayed but a little while above, sooner or later we all hasten to one abode. Hither are we all hastening. This is our last home, and you possess the most lasting dominion over the human race. She, too, when, in due season, she shall have completed her allotted number of years, will be under your sway. The enjoyment of her I beg as a favor, but if the fates deny me this privilege in behalf of my wife, I have determined that I will not return. Triumph in the death of us both. As he said such things, 
and touched the strings to his words. The bloodless spirits wept. Tantalus did not catch at the retreating water, and the wheel of Ixion stood still, as though in amazement. The birds did not tear the liver of Titius, and the granddaughters of Belus paused at their urns. Thou too, Sisyphus, didst seat thyself on thy stone. The story is that then, for the first time, the cheeks of the Eumenides, overcome by his music, were wet with tears. Nor could the royal consort, nor he who rules the infernal regions, endure to deny him his request. And they called for Eurydice. She was among the shades newly arrived, and she advanced with a slow pace by reason of her wound. The Rhodopean hero receives her, and, at the same time, this condition, that he turn not back his eyes until he has passed the Avernian Valleys, or else that the grant will be revoked. The ascending path is mounted in deep silence, steep, dark, and enveloped in deepening gloom. And now they were not far from the verge of the upper earth. He, enamored, fearing lest she should flag, and impatient to behold her, turned his eyes. And immediately she sank back again. She, hapless one, both stretching out her arms and struggling to be grasped and to grasp him, caught nothing but the fleeting air. And now, dying a second time, she did not at all complain of her husband. For why should she complain of being beloved? And now she pronounced the last farewell, which scarcely did he catch with his ears, and again was hurried back to the same place. No otherwise was Orpheus amazed at this twofold death of his wife, 
than he who, trembling, beheld the three necks of the dog, the middle one supporting chains, whom fear did not forsake before his former nature deserted him as stone gathered over his body. And then Olinus, who took on himself the crime of another and is willing to appear guilty. And then thou, unhappy Lathea, confiding in thy beauty, breasts once most united, now rocks which the watery Ida supports. The ferryman drove him away, entreating, and, in vain, desiring again to cross the stream. Still, for seven days, in squalid guise did he sit on the banks without the gifts of Ceres. Vexation and sorrow of mind and Tears were his sustenance. Complaining that the deities of Erebus were cruel, he betook himself to lofty Rhodo. And Hemus, buffeted by the north winds. The third titan had now ended the year bounded by the fishes of the ocean. And Orpheus had avoided all intercourse with woman, either because it had ended in misfortune to him, or because he had given a promise to that effect. Yet a passion possessed many a female to unite herself to the bard, and many a one grieved when he repulsed. He also was the first advisor of the people of Thrace to transfer their affections to tender youths, and, on this side of manhood, to enjoy the short spring of life, and its early flowers. There was a hill, and upon the hill the most level space of a plain, which the blades of grass made green. All shade was wanting in the spot, after the bard, sprung from the gods, had seated himself in this place and touched his tuneful strings, a shade came over the spot. The tree of Caonia was not absent, nor the grove of the Heliades nor the mast tree with its lofty branches, nor the tender lime trees, nor yet the beech and the virgin laurel, 
and the brittle hazels and the oak adapted for making spears and the fir without knots and the home bending beneath its acorns and the genial plane tree and the part-colored maple and, together with them, the willows growing by the rivers and the watery lotus and the evergreen box and the slender tamarisks and the two-colored myrtle and the thyme tree with its azure berries. You, too, the ivy trees, with your creeping tendrils, came, and together, the branching vines and the elms clothed with vines. The ashes, too, and the pitch trees, and the arbute, laden with its blushing fruit, and the bending palm the reward of the conqueror. The pine, too, with its tuft foliage and bristling at the top, pleasing to the mother of the gods. Since for this the Sibelian Attis put off the human form and hardened into that trunk, Amid this throng was present the cypress, resembling the cone, now a tree, but once a youth, beloved by that god who fits the lyre with the strings and the bow with the strings. For there was a large stag, sacred to the nymphs who inhabit the Carthanian fields, and with his horns extending afar. He himself afforded an ample shade to his own head. His horns were shining with gold, and a necklace studded with gems falling upon his shoulders, hung down from his smooth, round neck. A silver ball fastened with little straps, played upon his forehead, and pendants of brass of equal size shone on either ear around his hollow temples. He, too, void of fear, and laying aside his natural timorousness, used to frequent the houses, and to offer his neck to be patted by any hands, even though unknown to him. But yet, above all others, he was pleasing to thee, Cyparasus, most beauteous of the nation of Sia. Thou wast wont to lead the stag to new pastures and to the streams of running waters. 
Sometimes thou didst wreath flowers of various colors about his horns, and at other times, seated on his back like a horseman, first in this direction, then in that, thou didst guide his easy mouth with the purple bridle. T'was summer, in the middle of the day, in the bending arms of the crab that loves the seashore, were glowing with the heat of the sun. The stag, fatigued, was reclining his body on the grassy earth and was enjoying the coolness from the shade of a tree. By inadvertence, the boy Cyparasus pierced him with a sharp javelin. And when he saw him dying from the cruel wound, he resolved to attempt to die as well. What consolations did not Phoebus supply? And he advised him to grieve with moderation, and according to the occasion. Still did he lament, and as a last favor, he requested this of the gods above, that he might mourn forever. And now, his blood quite exhausted by incessant weeping, his limbs began to be changed into a green color, and the hair, which but lately hung from his snow-white forehead, to become a rough bush, and a stiffness being assumed, to point to the starry heavens with a tapering top. The god Phoebus lamented deeply, and in his sorrow he said, Thou shalt be mourned by me, and shalt mourn for others, and shalt ever attend upon those who are sorrowing for the dead. Such a grove of trees had the bard attracted round him, and he sat in the midst of an assembly of wild beasts and of a multitude of birds. When he had sufficiently tried the strings struck with his thumb and perceived that the various tones, though they gave different sounds, still harmonized, in this song he raised his voice. Begin, my parent muse, my song from Jove. All things submit to the sway of Jove. By me, often before has the power of Jove been sung.
In loftier strains have I sung of the giants, and the victorious thunderbolts scattered over the Phlegrian plains. Now is there occasion for a softer lyre, and let us sing of youths beloved by the gods above, and of girls surprised by unlawful flames who, by their wanton desires, have been deserving of punishment. The king of the gods above was once inflamed with a passion for Ganymede, and something was found that Jupiter preferred to be rather than what he was. Yet into no bird does he vouchsafe to be transformed, but that which can carry his bolts. And no delay is there. Striking the air with his fictitious wings, he carries off the youth of Ilium, who even now mingles his cup for him, and, much against the will of Juno, serves nectar to Jove. Phoebus would have placed thee too, descendant of Amicola, in the heavens, if the stern fates had given him time to place thee there. Still, so far as is possible, Thou art immortal. It is oft as the spring drives away the winter, and the ram succeeds the watery fish. So often dost thou spring up and blossom upon the green turf. Thee, beyond all others, did my father love, and Delphi, situate in the middle of the earth, was without its guardian deity, while the god was frequenting the Eurotus and the unfortified Sparta, and neither his lyre nor his arrows were held in esteem by him. Unmindful of his own dignity, he did not refuse to carry the nets, or to hold the dogs, or to go, as his companion, over the ridges of the rugged mountains, and by lengthened intimacy he augmented his flame. And now Titan was almost in his mid-course between the approaching and the past night, and was at an equal distance from them both, when they stripped their bodies of their garments and shone with the juice of the oily olive and engaged in the game of the broad quite. First, Phoebus tossed it, well poised, into the airy breeze and clove the opposite clouds with its weight. After a long pause, 
the heavy mass fell on the hard ground and showed skill united with strength. Immediately the Tenarian youth, in his thoughtlessness, and urged on by eagerness for the sport, hastened to take up the circlet, but the hard ground sent it back into the air with a rebound against thy face, Hyacinthus. Equally as pale as the youth does the divinity himself turn, and he bears up thy sinking limbs, and at one moment he cherishes thee, at another he stanches thy sad wound, and now he stops the fleeting life by the application of herbs. His skill is of no avail, the wound is incurable, as if, in a well-watered garden, anyone should break down violets or poppies and lilies as they adhere to their yellow stalks. Drooping, they would suddenly hang down their languid heads and could not support themselves and would look towards the ground with their tops. So sink his dying features, and, forsaken by its vigor, the neck is a burden to itself, and reclines upon the shoulder. Son of Ebalus, said Phoebus, thou fallest, deprived of thy early youth. And I look on thy wound as my own condemnation. Thou art the object of my grief and the cause of my crime. With thy death is my right hand to be charged. I am the author of thy destruction. Yet what is my fault? Unless to engage in sport can be termed a fault. Unless it can be called a fault, too, to have loved thee. And oh, that I could give my life for thee, or together with thee. But since I am restrained by the decrees of destiny, Thou shalt ever be with me, and shalt dwell on my mindful lips. The lyre struck with my hand, my songs, too, shall celebrate thee, and, becoming a new flower, by the inscription on thee, thou shalt imitate my lamentations. The time, too, shall come, at which a most valiant hero shall add his name to this flower, and it shall be read upon the same leaves.
While such things are being uttered by the prophetic lips of Apollo, behold, the blood which poured on the ground has stained the grass ceases to be blood, and a flower springs up, more bright than the Tyrian purple, and it assumes the appearance which lilies have, were there not in this a purple hue, and in them that of silver. This was not enough for Phoebus, for t'was he that was the author of this honor. He himself inscribed his own lamentations on the leaves, and the flower has, I, I, inscribed thereon. And the mournful characters there are traced. Nor is Sparta ashamed to have given birth to Hyacinth, and his honors continue to the present time. The Hyacinthian festival returns, too, each year, to be celebrated with the prescribed ceremonials after the manner of former celebrations. But if, perchance, you were to ask of Amethys, abounding in metals, whether she would wish to have produced the Propetides, she would deny it, as well as those whose foreheads were of old rugged with two horns, from which they also derived the name of Serasti. Before the doors of these was standing an altar of Jupiter, Huspies, a scene of tragic horrors. If any stranger had seen it stained with blood, he would have supposed that sucking calves had been killed there, and Amethusian sheep. Strangers were slain there. Genial Venus, offended at the wicked sacrifices there offered, was preparing to abandon her own cities and the Ophiusian lands. But how, said she, have these delightful spots, how have my cities offended? What criminalities there in them? Let the inhuman race, rather, suffer punishment by exile or death, or if there is any middle course between death and exile. And what can that be but the punishment of changing their shape? While she is hesitating into what she shall change them, she turns her eyes toward their horns. 
It is put in mind that those may be left to them. And then she transforms their huge limbs into those of fierce bulls. And yet the obscene propietes presume to deny that Venus is a goddess, for which they are reported the first of all women to have prostituted their bodies with their beauty through the anger of the goddess. And when their shame was gone, and the blood of their face was hardened, they were, by a slight transition, changed into hard rocks. When Pygmalion saw these women spending their lives in criminal pursuits, shocked at the vices which nature had so plentifully imparted to the female disposition, he lived a single life without a wife, and for a long time was without a partner of his bed. In the meantime, he ingeniously carved a statue of snow-white ivory with wondrous skill, and gave it a beauty with which no woman can be born, and then conceived a passion for his own workmanship. The appearance was that of a real virgin, whom you might suppose to be alive. And if modesty did not hinder her to be desirous to move, so much did art lie concealed under his skill. Pygmalion admires it and entertains within his breast a flame for this fictitious body. Often does he apply his hands to the work, to try whether it is a human body or whether it is ivory. And yet he does not own it to be ivory. He gives it kisses and fancies that they are returned and speaks to it and takes hold of it and thinks that his fingers make an impression on the limbs when they touch and is fearful lest a livid mark should come on her limbs when pressed. And one while he employs soft expressions, at another time he brings her presents that are agreeable to maidens, such as shells and smooth pebbles and little birds and flowers of a thousand tints and lilies and painted balls and tears of the heliads and that have fallen from the trees. He decks her limbs, too, with clothing and puts jewels on her fingers. He puts, too, 
a long necklace on her neck. Smooth pendants hang from her ears and bows from her breast. All things are becoming to her, and she does not seem less beautiful than when naked. He places her on coverings dyed with the Sidonian shell and calls her the companion of his bed and lays down her reclining neck upon soft feathers as though it were sensible. A festival of Venus, much celebrated throughout all Cyprus, had now come, and heifers with snow-white necks, having their spreading horns tipped with gold, fell, struck by the axe. Frankincense, too, was smoking, when, having made his offering, Pygmalion stood before the altar and timorously said, if ye gods can grant all things, let my wife be, I pray. And he did not dare to say, this ivory maid, but like to this statue of ivory. The golden Venus as she herself was present at her own festival, understood what that prayer meant. And as an omen of the divinity being favorable, thrice was the flame kindled up, and it sent up a tapering flame into the air. Soon as he returned, he repaired to the image of his maiden. And lying along the couch, he gave her kisses. She seems to grow warm. Again, he applies his mouth. With his hands, too, he feels her breast. The pressed ivory become soft and losing its hardness yields to his fingers and gives way just as Hymetian wax grows soft in the sun and being worked with his fingers is turned into many shapes and becomes pliable by very handling. While he is amazed and is rejoicing, though with apprehension, and is fearing that he is deceived, the lover again and again touches the object of his desires with his hand. It is a real body. The veins throb when touched 
with the thumb. Then, indeed, the Paphian hero conceives in his mind the most lavish expressions with which to give thanks to Venus, and at length presses lips, no longer fictitious, with his own lips. The maiden, too, feels the kisses given her and blushes, and raising her timorous eyes towards the light of day, she sees at once her lover and the heavens. The goddess was present at the marriage which she thus affected, and now, the horns of the moon having been nine times gathered into a full orb, she brought forth Paphos, from whom the island derived its name. Wing time glides on insensibly and deceives us. And there is nothing more fleeting than years. He, born of his own sister and of his grandfather, who, so lately enclosed in a tree, was so lately born, and but just now a most beauteous infant, is now a youth, now a man, and now more beauteous than he was before. And now he pleases even Venus, and revenges the flames of his mother, kindled by her. For, while the boy that wears the quiver is giving kisses to his mother, he unconsciously grazes her breast with a protruding arrow. The goddess, wounded, pushed away her son with her hand. The wound was inflicted more deeply than it seemed to be. It at first had deceived even herself. Charmed with the beauty of the youth, she does not now care for the Cytherean shores, nor does she revisit Paphos, surrounded with the deep sea and Gnidos, abounding in fish, or Amethyst, rich in metals. She abandons even the skies. Him she ever attends. And she who has been always accustomed to indulge in the shade and to improve her beauty by taking care of it, wanders over the tops of mountains, through the woods, and over bushy rocks, bare to the knee, and with robes tucked up after the manner of Diana. And she cheers on the dogs, and hunts animals that are harmless prey, either the fleet hares or the stag 
with its lofty horns, or the hinds. She keeps afar from the fierce boars, and avoids the ravening wolves, and the bears armed with claws, and the lions glutted with the slaughter of the herds. Thee, too, Adonis, she counsels to fear them, if she can aught avail by advising thee. And she says, Be brave against those animals that fly. Boldness is not safe against those that are bold. Forbear, youth, to be rash at my hazard. And attack not the wild beasts to which nature has granted arms, lest thy thirst for glory should cost me dear. Neither thy age, nor thy beauty, nor other things which I have made an impression on Venus, make any impression on lions and bristly boars, and the eyes and the tempers of wild beasts. The fierce boars carry lightning in their curving tusks. There is rage and fury unlimited in the tawny lions. The whole race is odious to me. Upon his asking, what is the reason, she says, I will tell thee, thou wilt be surprised at the prodigious result of a fault long since committed. But this toil to which I am unaccustomed has now fatigued me, and see, a convenient poplar invites us by its shade, and the turf furnishes a couch. Here I am desirous to repose myself together with thee. And forthwith she rests herself on the ground, impresses at once the grass and himself. And with her neck reclining on the bosom of the youth, smiling, she thus says, and she mingles kisses in the midst of her words. Perhaps thou mayest have heard how a certain damsel excelled the swiftest men in the contest of speed. That report was no idle tale, for she did excel them. Nor couldst thou have said whether she was more distinguished in the merit of her swiftness or in the excellence of her beauty. Upon her consulting the oracle about a husband, the god said to her, Thou hast no need, Atalanta, of a husband. Avoid obtaining a husband, and yet thou wilt not avoid it, and while still living, thou wilt lose thyself. 
alarmed with the response of the god. She lives a single life in the shady woods and determinedly repulses the pressing multitude of her suitors with these conditions. I am not, says she, to be gained unless first surpassed in speed. Engage with me in running. Both a wife and a wedding shall be given as the reward of the swift. Death shall be the recompense of the slow. Let that be the condition of the contest. She, indeed, was cruel in this proposal. But so great is the power of beauty. A rash multitude of suitors agreed to these terms. Hippomenes had sat as a spectator of this unreasonable race and said, Is a wife sought by anyone amid dangers so great? And thus he condemned the excessive ardor of the youths. But when he beheld her face and her body with her clothes laid aside, such as mine is, or such as thine would be, Adonis, if thou wast to become a woman, he was astonished, and raising his hands, he said, Pardon me, yea, whom I was just now censuring. The reward which you contended for was not yet known to me. In commanding her, he kindles the flame and wishes that none of the young men may run more swiftly than she, and, in his envy, is apprehensive of it. But why, says he, is my chance in this contest left untried? The divinity himself assists the daring, while Hippomenes is pondering such things within himself, the virgin flies with winged pace. Although she appears to the Aeonian youth to go no less swiftly than the Scythian arrow, he admires her still more in her beauty, and the very speed makes her beauteous. The breeze that meets her bears back her pinions on her swift feet, and her hair is thrown over her ivory shoulders and the leggings which are below her knees with their variegated border, and upon her virgin whiteness her 
body has contracted a blush, no otherwise than as when purple hangings over a whitened hall tinted with a shade of a similar color. While the stranger is observing these things, the last course is run, and the victorious Atalanta is adorned with a festive crown. The vanquished utter sighs and pay the penalty according to the stipulation. Still, not awed by the end of these young men, he stands up in the midst, and, fixing his eyes on the maiden, he says, Why dost thou seek an easy victory by conquering the inactive? Contend now with me. If fortune shall render me victorious, thou wilt not take it ill to be conquered by one so illustrious. Father was Megarius, Anchistius his, Neptune was his grandsire. I am the great-grandson of the king of the waves nor is my merit inferior to my extraction. Or if I shall be conquered, the conquest of Hippomenes, thou wilt have a great and honorable name. As he utters such words as these, the daughter of Scenius regards him with a benign countenance, and is in doubt whether she shall wish to be overcome or to conquer. And thus she says, What deity, a foe to the beauteous, wishes to undo this youth, and commands him, at the risk of a life so dear, to seek this alliance? In my own opinion, I am not of so great value, nor yet am I moved by his beauty. Still, by this, too, I could be moved. But it is because he is still a boy. It is not himself that affects me, but his age. And is it not, too, because he has courage and a mind undismayed by death? And is it not, besides, because he is reckoned forth in descent from the monarch of the sea? And is it not because he loves me and thinks a marriage with me of so much worth as to perish for it? if cruel fortune should deny me to him. Stranger, while still thou mayest be gone,
and abandon an alliance stained with blood. A match with me is cruelly hazardous. No woman will be unwilling to be married to thee, and thou mayest be desired even by a prudent maid. But why have I any concern for thee, when so many have already perished? Let him look to it, and let him die, since he is not worn by the fate of so many of my wooers, and is impelled onwards to weariness of life. Shall he then die because he was desirous with me to live? And shall he suffer an undeserved death, the reward of his love? My victory will not be able to support the odium of the deed. But it is no fault of mine. I wish thou wouldst desist. Or since thou art thus mad, would that thou wast more fleet than I. But what a feminine look there is in his youthful face. Ah, wretched Hippomenes, I would that I had not been seen by thee. Thou wast worthy to have lived. And if I had been more fortunate, and if the vexatious divinities had not denied me the blessings of marriage, thou wast one with whom I could have shared my bed. Thus she said, and as one inexperienced and smitten by Cupid for the first time, not knowing what she is doing. She is in love, and yet does not know that she is in love. And now, both the people and her father demanded the usual race, when Hippomenes, the descendant of Neptune, invoked me with anxious voice, I entreat that Cytheria may favor my undertaking and aid the passion that she has inspired in me. The breeze, not envious, wafted to me his tender prayer. I was moved, I confess it. Nor was any long delay made in giving aid. There is a field. The natives call it by the name the Tamasinian field, the choicest spot in the Cyprian land. This the elders of former days consecrated to me 
and ordered to be added as an endowment for my temple. In the middle of this field a tree flourishes, with yellow foliage, and with branches tinkling with yellow gold. Hence, by chance as I was coming, I carried three golden apples that I had plucked in my hand. And being visible to none but him, I approached Hippomenes, and I showed him what was to be the use of them. The trumpets have now given the signal, when each of them darts precipitately from the starting place, and skims the surface of the sand with nimble feet. You might have thought them able to pace the sea with dry feet, and to run along the ears of white standing corn while erect. The shouts and the applause of the populace give courage to the youth, and the words of those who exclaim, Now, now, Hippomenes, is the moment to spin onward. Make haste, now use all thy strength. Away with delay, thou shalt be conqueror. It is doubtful whether the Megarian hero or the virgin daughter of Scenius rejoiced the most at these sayings. Oh, how often, when she could have passed by him, did she slacken her speed, and then unwillingly left behind the features that long she had gazed upon. A parched panting is coming from his faint mouth, and the goal is still a great way off. Then, at length, the descendant of Neptune throws one of the three products of the tree. The virgin is amazed, and from a desire for the shining fruit, she turns from her course and picks up the rolling gold. Hippomenes passes her. The theaters ring with applause. She makes amends for her delay. In the time that she is lost with a swift pace, and again she leaves the youth behind. And, retarded by the throwing of a second apple, again she overtakes the young man and passes by him. The last part of the race now remained. And now, said he, O oh goddess, giver of this present, aid me. And then, with youthful might, he threw the shining gold in an oblique direction on one side of the plain, in order that she might return the moors slowly. The maiden seemed to be in doubt whether she should fetch it. 
I forced her to take it up and added weight to the apple. When she had taken it up and I impeded her both by the heaviness of the burden and the delay in reaching it. And that my narrative may not be more tedious than the race, the virgin was outrun the conqueror obtained his prize. And was I not, Adonis, deserving that he should return thanks to me and the tribute of frankincense? But in his ingratitude, he gave me neither thanks nor frankincense. I was thrown into a sudden passion and provoked at being slighted. I provided by making an example that I should not be despised in future times, and I aroused myself against them both. They were passing by a temple, concealed within a shady wood, which the famous Echion had formerly built for the mother of the gods according to his vow. And the length of their journey moved them to take rest there. There, an unseasonable desire of caressing his wife seized Hippomenes, excited by my agency. Near the temple was a recess with but little light like a cave, covered with native pumice stone, one sacred from ancient religious observance, where the priest had conveyed many a wooden image of the ancient gods. This he entered, and he defiled the sanctuary by a forbidden crime. The sacred images turned away their eyes, and the mother of the gods, crowned with turrets, was in doubt whether she should plunge these guilty ones in the Stygian stream. That seemed too light a punishment. Wherefore yellow manes cover their necks so lately smooth, their fingers are bent into claws, of their shoulders are made forelegs, their whole weight passes into their breasts. The surface of the sand is swept by their tails. Their look has anger in it. Instead of words, they utter growls. Instead of chambers, they haunt the woods. And dreadful to others, as lions, they champ the bits of Cybele with subdued jaws. Do thou, beloved by me, avoid these, and together with these, all kinds of wild beasts which turn not their backs in flight, but their breasts to the fight lest thy courage should be fatal to us both.
he indeed thus warned him, and, harnessing her swans, winged her way through the air. But his courage stood in opposition to her advice. By chance, his dogs, having followed its sure track, roused a boar, and the son of Cinereus pierced him, endeavoring to escape from the wood with a wound from the side. Immediately the fierce boar, with his crooked snout, struck out the hunting spear, stained with his blood, and then pursued him, trembling and seeking a safe retreat, and lodged his entire tusks in his groin, and stretched him expiring on the yellow sand. Cytheria, born in her light chariot through the middle of the air, had not yet arrived at Cyprus upon the wings of her swans. She recognized afar his groans as he was dying and turned her white birds in that direction. And when from the lofty sky she beheld him half dead and bathing his body in his own blood. She rapidly descended and rent both her garments and her hair, and she smote her breast with her distracted hands. And complaining of the fates, she says, but, however, all things shall not be in your power. The memorials of my sorrow, Adonis, shall ever remain. And the representation of thy death, repeated yearly, shall exhibit an imitation of my mourning. But thy blood shall be changed into a flower. Was it formerly allowed thee, Persephone, to change the limbs of a female into fragrant mint? And shall the hero, the son of Sinrius, if changed, be a cause of displeasure against me? Having thus said, she sprinkles his blood with odoriferous nectar, which, touched by it, effervesces, just as the transparent bubbles are wont to rise in rainy weather. Nor was there a pause longer than a full hour when a flower sprang up from the blood of the same color with it, such as the pomegranates are wont to bear, which conceal their seeds beneath their tough rind. Yet the enjoyment of it is but short-lived, 
but the same winds which give it a name beat it down, as it has but a slender hold, and is apt to fall by reason of its extreme slenderness. And with that, dear listener, we've reached the conclusion of Book 10 of Ovid's Great Metamorphoses. I do hope you enjoyed our time together. <laughs>